Our scripture reading this evening is Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. A very familiar and beautiful passage of scripture. We read this for what it says about the Holy Spirit in particular. Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have made appointed our mediator and Savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, Guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and building up of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession is Article 11. I would ask you to turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnals to page 858. Page 
God has spoken to us in His Word. This is our confession of faith in response to God's Word. You'll see Article 11 there on the bottom of the page, 858. Let us say together, We believe and confess also that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but only proceeding from the two of them. In regard to order, he is the third person of the Trinity, of one and the same essence and majesty and glory with the Father and the Son. He is true and eternal God, as the Holy Scriptures teach us. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we begin this evening, and as I hope to stop saying soon, because you'll get the hang of it, I want to begin with the first sentence on your outline. We should take seriously the question, do we neglect the Holy Spirit? And the further question flowing from that, is the Reformed tradition particularly to blame for such neglect? Many of us are aware, and many of you, especially who are younger, will encounter this as you get to know Christians from other traditions, that we do not speak of the Holy Spirit in the same way that many other Christians do. And when you encounter that, especially when they are good and faithful Christians in so many ways, that can raise the question in your own minds, do we have something wrong then? Why don't we talk about the Holy Spirit the way others do? Is it possible that we have something doctrinally wrong? Is it possible that we are ourselves spiritually neglecting the Holy Spirit? Now, my intention this evening is to take seriously that question. I don't want to dismiss it. I don't want to act like it's an unnecessary question. All of us must acknowledge the possibility for any theological theme, for any theme about the Christian life or the way of life in the covenant, All of us must acknowledge the possibility that there could be very important things the Scriptures teach that we neglect, that we don't care about as we should, that we don't love as we should, that we don't think about or feel as we should. And it's very possible that we can learn, even from fellow Christians who are wrong about certain things, we can still learn about that neglect and be corrected. We all should be open up to that about the Holy Spirit. It is also the case that perhaps there are valid theological reasons that we don't speak of the Spirit like others do. And when you're confronted by that question, the reason you shouldn't neglect it is not only that you can learn from others, but maybe you have something to offer others. I want to persuade us of both of these things this evening, that we ought to learn from others to appreciate the Spirit more, And we also ought to love how we have to contribute to other Christian traditions a way of speaking about the Spirit that is good and wise and scriptural. Both of these things should matter to us. Some of you may remember not very long ago, we've actually had a couple of times where it's come up, we've talked about the question of how how can we know God's will for our life? How does God lead and guide us when we are making decisions? And one of the things we emphasize is that there's a lot of dangers in talking about God by His Spirit telling us to do something. That there's a danger of that threatening the uniqueness of Scripture, of talking about the Holy Spirit in a way that we can't actually know for sure what He's saying. And when we, when we push away from that way of speaking, though, then I think some of us worry, well, then what does the Holy Spirit do? Especially if that's a way of speaking we are used to. You might even feel like we're saying, eh, the Holy Spirit doesn't matter that much. 
I want to take all of that seriously this evening. We do this, first of all, by turning to what we have just confessed in the Belgic Confession about, number one on your outline, the person of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity, distinguished from the Father and the Son by way of proceeding eternally from them. And this is the main thing, I'm going to say a lot more about the Spirit, but this is the main thing being emphasized by this article of the Confession in particular, is simply affirming the full deity of the Spirit. Letter A, the Holy Spirit is fully God. Not a God, but a person of the one God. Simply another restatement of Trinity there. And is personal, not a mere power or force. Those two things then in letter A, the Holy Spirit is fully God. We must remember the oneness of God. Our Belgic Confession emphasizes this. The phrase of one and the same essence and majesty and glory with the Father and the Son. That phrase, one and the same essence, is essential. That he is not a part of God or a God, but is the presence of the one God. He is also personal. And he is personal no more or less than the Father or the Son. We think of the scriptures warning us about grieving the Holy Spirit or the account of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts when the apostles say that they have lied to the Holy Spirit. This is all language that speaks of the Spirit personally and we ought to speak of the Spirit in the same way. That He is the presence of the one God sent by the one God, proceeding from the Father and the Son. One place in Scripture where all of this is beautifully combined is in our Scripture reading. You should have quoted on your outline there, Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, notice all the different ways in that short sequence of two verses, the Spirit is spoken of. He is the Spirit. He is the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of Christ. Him being in you means Christ is in you. And then at the end of the verse, He is again the Spirit. Why? Well, because of the oneness of God. What we confess about Trinity, that the presence of the Spirit simply is the presence of the one God. He is the way in which the Father is with you, the way in which Christ indwells you. All of that reality, the, the Spirit as the one God sent by the one God, is what we confess in the doctrine of the Trinity. Letter B. This is a truth that is adumbrated. Well, there it is again foreshadowed, anticipated in the Old Testament and revealed more clearly in the New Testament. What is this truth? Well, the truth of the Spirit simply being the one God, but in a meaningful sense being distinguished from God. God sends the Spirit, but the Spirit that dwells in you just is God dwelling in you. That is clearest in the New Testament, especially through the event of Pentecost and the sending of the Holy Spirit. But it is something that is hinted at. It is signaled in outline form. It is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Language of the Spirit as simply being the presence of the one God, but spoken of in distinction from God. The example from creation, Genesis 1 verse 2. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. His word is also present. Letter C. So thus far, A and B are what are being emphasized by our confession. Simply, the reality of the person of the Spirit as the fullness of God sent by God. Letter C. The Holy Spirit is definitively emphasized in Reformed theology. Now here we're going beyond the Belgic Confession. This is the language of the Heidelberg Catechism in particular, though these themes are present in the Belgic Confession as well. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives faith. Heidelberg 65, where does faith come from? The Holy Spirit creates it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who unites us to Christ. It is by the Spirit that we are made members of Christ and therefore share in all of His blessings and gifts. This was the language of Romans 8. You know that if you have the Spirit, you are in Christ. You belong to Christ. Christ dwells in you by the Spirit. That the way we are united to Him is by the Spirit's presence and work. And He is the one who gives us new life. That also is what Paul is emphasizing in Romans chapter 8. That the Spirit is the one who, because He unites us to Christ, He renews us, He makes us more like Christ, He causes us to be defined by Him and shaped by Him. Thus far, the doctrine. The Holy Spirit is fully God, one of the three persons of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us faith, unites us to Christ, and gives us new life. Doctrinally, theologically, all of that is enough to say that Reformed theology does not neglect the Spirit. And I hope you sense, though we just gave that in a very doctrinally summarized form, all of that is deeply experiential. The entire Christian life can be summarized as a life of faith. And that faith, by which you can summarize your whole life, is something the Holy Spirit is doing. Theologically, we affirm that every moment our faith is sustained by the Spirit. We could summarize the entirety of the Christian life as that of being united to Christ. And here we are saying in Reformed theology that it is the Holy Spirit who keeps us in union with Christ, who does that work, who causes us to experience and delight in and love and live out of that union with Him. All of that is the Spirit's work. And we could summarize all of the Christian life as being the job, the work of living out of this. And that too is the Spirit's work. Every struggle of faith, every struggle to be faithful, every challenge in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit is at work in and among us. Theologically, we have emphasized the Spirit. Indeed, for these reasons, John Calvin has famously been called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Because what do the doctrines of grace say but that all of the Christian life, beginning, middle, and end, is God's work in you by the Spirit. More than that, though, and I, I want to first of all emphasize how beautiful and good and rich that is, that we do describe the Spirit as being at work in all of the Christian life, emphasize just how great that is, but also say more. Number two, the story of the Spirit the Holy Spirit is clearly present and celebrated by Reformed biblical theology in particular throughout the story of redemption. See, I, I wanna, what I want to do here is I want to sort of shift the tone 
of how we answer this question of do we neglect the Holy Spirit. I'm afraid that if we uh, debate those who, who affirm the Spirit or talk about the Spirit in a way we disagree with, if we debate them simply in terms of what we said under number one, letter C on your outline, I think we're debating them too much on their own terms. Because what are the terms of that debate? My personal, private experience of the Spirit. And we say, okay, they talk about it in a certain way. We also talk about the personal, private experience of the Spirit, but in a more reformed way. He gives us faith. He unites us to Christ. He gives us new life. All of that is true. But again, I'm afraid we're letting the debate define how we talk about the Spirit. I want us to stand back, and this is always dangerous to do, but I want us to look at the whole Bible. And there are themes, especially in how Reformed theologians will talk about the story of the whole Bible, that in very exciting and beautiful and rich ways bring out and emphasize the Spirit. And part of the wisdom of the Reformed tradition is that way, that that emphasis on the whole story of Scripture as the context in which we are living. And we lose something if we simply make the debate, the discussion, be about our personal, individual experience of the Spirit. So here's what I want us to do. If you turn over your outline, you have a list of 16 points entitled The Story of the Spirit. Some of you have seen this before. I think about five years ago. We looked at this. We're not going to look at it in detail. I am going to read it, though. The goal here is not to remember every point. It's not to savor every point. You're welcome to dig into any of these later. But I want you to see the overall flow of the presence and work of the Holy Spirit from Genesis to Revelation. And then from that, I want to go back and answer our question, are we neglecting the Holy Spirit? So let's enjoy This is the goal. Let's enjoy this list together. You're not trying to memorize it all. You're not trying to hold it all in your brain. It's a, what I think is a beautiful picture of the Spirit's work. Number one, the Spirit is involved in the creation of the world. We read that verse a moment ago, the Spirit hovering over the waters. After the flood, the dove flying over the waters alludes to the Spirit in Genesis 1. Remember also we spoke of in the story of the flood the word for the wind that blows over the waters being the same word as the word for spirit. That in that recreation at the flood, the spirit is at work. Number three, the Shekinah glory cloud. Now Shekinah is a fun word summarizing the visible presence of God in Israel in the Old Testament. We think of the pillar of cloud and fire that led Israel, that descended upon the tabernacle. Number three, the Shekinah glory cloud is imagery of the Spirit leading and guiding Israel, the means by which God is present among His people as the Spirit indwells the tabernacle in the midst of Israel. One of the main things God's people were promised and experienced was the presence of the Spirit in the midst of them corporately. As a group, as the covenant people, part of what it meant to be the covenant people is that God by His Spirit was with them. Number four, God's people in the Old Testament enjoyed the indwelling of the Spirit. And by this I mean individually. In Psalm 51, David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Well, that means he must have the Holy Spirit personally. Though, not yet the fullness of being united by the Spirit to the risen, ascended, reigning Messiah. Why? Well, because that hadn't happened yet. 
by the way, I find one of the most fascinating questions in, how, in biblical theology, how Old and New Testament relate together, to be the question of what difference is there in how the Old Testament believer versus the New Testament believer experience the Holy Spirit. It's a lovely question because it brings out the continuity that the work of faith has always been the work of the Spirit. They must have had the Holy Spirit, but also the discontinuity, that the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost is an event, a thing. Number five, the Spirit anointed individuals for their callings. In the judges, for example, so not just every believer had the Spirit indwelling, but the Spirit is spoken of as enabling the judges to do the work they are called to do. Number six, the exile is described as God's Shekinah glory departing from Israel. So again, we're trying to see the whole big picture of the story. The Spirit's involved in creation. The Spirit dwells in the midst of Israel in the tabernacle. When they go into exile, what is judgment but the departing of that Spirit? And it's one of the ways that that event is uh, summarized, defined. What is happening God's glory departs. During the exile, however, the prophets promised the restoration of Israel as involving the return of God's glory presence and a pouring out of the Spirit. So in the exile, the Spirit departs. When the prophets say one day God's going to restore you, they summarize that as being the Spirit will return. God is going to come to Israel. Indeed, Messianic promises involve, speak of, anointing of the Spirit. So then it should not surprise us that when the incarnation is spoken of, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, number nine, it is accomplished by the Spirit. The Spirit of God will overshadow you. Well, why, why this language? Well, it's not just a technicality. That's the only way it could happen. It's also, that is, that is the story of the world, that the Spirit had departed, and now the Spirit is returning to Israel. And part of that Spirit returning to Israel is the work of, uh, of the incarnation. The Spirit then empowers Jesus to carry out His calling as the Messiah. At His baptism, the Holy Spirit depends, descends upon Him. As to His humanity as the Messiah, He required the Spirit to enable Him to do what He was doing. And in all that is continuing the imagery of the Spirit that had left Israel, returning to Israel. Jesus says that Israel needs to be made new, born again by the Spirit. And yes, I do think that phrasing, you need to be born again, is first of all about Israel needing to be renewed. Number 12, Jesus promises and sends the fullness of the Spirit after his ascension. When that happens, that's not a new idea. It's not a plan B. It's something, not something God's decided to do out of the blue, but it is rather what he had promised all along. But now the Spirit is being poured out. And God had promised through the, 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 through the prophets that when Israel was restored, the nations would be brought in. Think of our passage this morning about Egypt and Assyria being included. Well, here, all of that combines. When the Spirit is poured out, what happens? But the gospel being proclaimed in all languages. Number 13, at Pentecost, the Shekinah glory of the Spirit is given to all of God's people. Remember the tongues of fire appearing above them. Well, that's that imagery of the presence of the Spirit in the Old Testament, that what God said would happen has now finally happened. 
by the Messiah, the work of the Messiah, the Spirit has returned to Israel. But now it's going to the nations. The nations are being brought in. Number 14, the Spirit inspires the Scriptures and provides the miraculous signs that confirm the testimony of the apostles as the foundation of the church. This is how we speak of the special gifts of the Spirit, that they were the miraculous signs that confirmed that it was through the apostles that that authoritative witness and testimony was being given. That also is the work of the Holy Spirit. Number 15, the Spirit builds the church, drawing the nations to Israel's Messiah as the center of restoration and new creation. It is now the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to be drawing people to Christ. And then we're told in Revelation, the Spirit makes the world new, filling all of creation with God's presence. All of this, that one picture of the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the entire story of Scripture, the entire story of redemption. Hold all of that in your mind, not the details, but the picture, the way that felt, what we just experienced, looking at all of that. And then go to number B, letter B. The Spirit unites us to Christ and thereby locates us, our identity, our experiences, our calling within that one story of what God is doing in the world. Now do you sense the the shift in how we say that? We're not simply debating my own individual experience of the Spirit. We're saying, no, the Scriptures speak of this so much differently. That it's about what God is doing in this big story. And then by union with Christ, you are swept up in that. You are included in that. It was for the sake of you, to to get to you, as it were, among the nations. And that work of being united to Christ situates us within that. I want to honor the nagging worry that many of us have that we are neglecting at times the experiential dimension of the Spirit's presence and work. I want to honor that nagging worry because, first of all, it might be true. We might be neglecting this. We might not be caring about this the way we should. And I also want to honor that worry because doctrinal clarity might just help us appreciate this more might just help us see how we, in fact, are appreciating the Spirit, but there's something about the Spirit's work that means He is sort of, as it were, behind the scenes, directing us toward Christ. We so often speak and act as though the real thing, the real experience, if you really care about experience and that which is real, the real thing is our own personal, private, individual experience. And this is precisely the thing that needs to change. The better way, I'm trying to argue here, the more scriptural way, is to emphasize our personal involvement in that bigger story. But notice, that's not a change from, okay, those Christians over there, they all talk about individual experience, and we're just talking about big lofty doctrines. No, 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 no. This is a deepening of experience that now we have situated it in something much bigger, much more reliable, much more trustworthy, bigger than us and therefore not dependent upon us in our description of our experience. This is not less but more. And this way of approaching it, this way of talking about it, it's not less spirit but more spirit. It's not less experience but more experience and it is deeper and richer and greater and bigger than simply being about my personal private 
story. I want both to challenge us to love that more, because I'm not, you know, we, we, we all need to be challenged in that way, to truly love our personal involvement in that work of the Spirit. But I also want to encourage us that this is a richness of our theological tradition, that we speak of the work of the Spirit in, in just this way, and that this way is a good thing. And that indeed, we ought to be seeking not doctrinal abstraction instead of experience, but this mode of experience, that we as God's people are swept up in this great work of what God is doing. Well, let's give a few examples of that. Number three, the work of the Spirit. Getting this right leads to a deeper appreciation of the role of the Holy Spirit in all of life. We're going to move through these pretty quickly. There's, 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 there's a, a, a theological, a doctrinal thread running through all three of them. What the Spirit does is not an additional, strange overlay on ordinary life. Like you have ordinary humanness, ordinary creaturely things, what we do during the week, who we are as ordinary people, and then you have this extra Spirit thing that happens. Remember, where did the story of the Spirit begin? creation. It is by his word and spirit that God created. Think of the presence of the spirit in Israel, that the spirit is is renewing, working in us to renew precisely our ordinary created existence. So this is how the scriptures speak of assurance, for example. Letter A, the Holy Spirit gives us assurance by testifying with our spirit that we are God's adopted children. And what we want to contrast here, and I've done this many times with you, in, for example, studying the canons of Dort, is testifying with our spirit rather than testifying to our spirit. What's the difference? Well, if it's testifying to, you know, you have, you have your ordinary Christian experience, and now you're waiting for this extra, some extra experience by which the spirit tells you, yes, you really are a Christian. Yes, really, God does love you. And you're waiting for the spirit to say this thing to you. Instead of appreciating that every moment of you saying amen to anything God says, as Romans 8 describes, any moment of you crying out, Abba, Father, just is the Holy Spirit working in you. And the Holy Spirit works in you, again, not as this invasion from the outside that sort of overrides what you might otherwise have thought or felt, but rather the Spirit is working with the grain, in a sense, of your humanity and your humanness, so that your simple crying out to God as your Father is the Spirit's work in you. And you get to love that. You get to be sure of that. You get to delight in that, not waiting for something additional and strange that confirms, but simply resting in that truth. And it is in that, saying amen to what God has promised, that the Spirit is comforting and strengthening and assuring you. Another example, letter B. The Holy Spirit helps us make decisions by giving us wisdom in union with Christ. Now, we could say the exact same point over again, but now talking about making decisions instead of assurance. If we think of the Holy Spirit in what we consider the misguided way, the wrong way, and we have a decision to make, what are we wanting? We think, first of all, there's my ordinary thinking and working through it as a creature, as a human in the world. 
And then what I want is I want God to zap me with something extra. I want the Holy Spirit to do the sequence of door closing and door opening that somehow I know he's telling me by code to do something. Or we want the Holy Spirit to give us a certain warm feeling inside after we've made the decision. So now we can be sure because that peace must have come from him because, no, we can never have peace about a bad decision. Peace must have come from him. That's the Holy Spirit then, you know, telling us something from the outside. We want it to be from the outside. Rather than the biblical imagery that the Holy Spirit is working in all of it. That all of who you are is dependent upon every moment of faith, every moment in union with Christ, every moment of new life is all the work of the Spirit within you, renewing you, making you who you are, making you more like Christ. And part of that making you more like Christ is giving you wisdom. So when James 1 tells, if any of you lack wisdom, let him uh, pray to God who provides generously wisdom, it's not going to be wisdom as in a zapping of new information from the outside. It's rather God renewing you to be like Christ who just is the wisdom of God. And it is in that ordinary way that the Spirit is at work. Now, I know that if we are used to speaking of it where the Spirit's always this extra, like overlay, this other thing, you feel like we just took away the Spirit's work, like we're saying less Spirit. But what we want to hear in all of this is we're actually saying more Spirit, We're saying that all of it is the work of the Spirit. And for all of it, we depend upon the work of the Spirit. When you are making a decision, it is the Spirit who gives you wisdom, making you like Christ. It is the Spirit who enables you to understand the Scriptures and be wise about how God's Word applies to a situation. It is the Spirit who unites you in Christ with other believers. That as you seek advice and counsel from fellow believers... That also is a product of what the Holy Spirit is doing in and among us. And yes, it is very ordinary. But we ought to expect the ordinary, to love the ordinary, because God is the creator. Every moment of ordinary is something he made that he called good and that he is restoring in Christ. It's not less spirit, it's more spirit. Let her see. The Holy Spirit ministers to us through the ordinary means of grace. Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing the proclamation of the word. How do we seek the Spirit's presence in worship? Again, through the ordinary, the confidence that every moment of God's word being spoken, every moment of the church being gathered together is the Spirit's work, is is something the Spirit is using among us to minister to us, to give faith, to strengthen faith, to unite us to Christ, to unite us together. And again, this is my plea. This is not a downgrade, all right? If If we say, no, we view the Holy Spirit as being at work in all the ordinary things, this isn't a downgrade of the Spirit. Let's view it as an upgrade of the ordinary things. And maybe that's where we need to be challenged. I'm afraid too many of us think that the difference we have with Pentecostals is they talk about what the Holy Spirit's doing in worship and we just have sermons. No, we also fully affirm and desire and long for and expect the supernatural presence and work of the Holy Spirit among us in worship. 
Or do we? Do we? You see, that's the challenge. That precisely in those ordinary means of grace, we ought to be with faith-filled expectation anticipating the Spirit's presence among us. As we come to the Lord's Supper, we confess the words, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Why? Because of the conviction that by the presence of the Spirit, heaven and earth are being united together. That worship is like a thin spot between heaven and earth when, when we experience God's presence in a special way. None of that is something we are zapped with from the outside. It is something received by faith in that ordinary way. But you see, it's received by faith. And so we must come with that expectation, seeking it, desiring it, longing for it, anticipating it, praying for it, all to be received by faith. The last sentence there on your outline. All of these assurance, wisdom, the means of grace must be received by faith as God's gracious gifts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Spirit's work in our lives. We humbly acknowledge our dependence upon him in every moment of faith, every moment of life in union with Christ. And we ask you to help us truly love and desire this more and more, that we might receive by faith the work that you are doing among us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.